Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this exciting episode of Star Pod Log, we're going to have special guest Anthony Rooney discuss The Prisoner, Billy Hogan talk about Superman the Movie, Paul Haber and Logan's Run. Comic book legend Jim Shooter will be discussing comic books and science fiction. Nathan Allen discusses the Death Star plans and how they were created on a computer by Larry Cuba. Kevin Packard and Grant Pachoco discuss superheroes on television, UFOs, and close encounters of the third kind. All this and more from two issues of Starlog Magazine, issues 11 and 12 from 1978 on... Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Star Pod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. MathrothamCon, April 30th to May 2nd. We will be presenting a panel on Saturday entitled Star Trek on Paramount Plus. That is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We hope to see you there. Art Starlog Magazine, issue 11, cover date, January 1978. So we look at the cover, and it's all about makeup men. I mean, this is the first time the cover of a Starlog actually looks like the cover of Fangoria magazine. Yeah, like a horror cover. So they're they're continuing their um, interview with makeup artists, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Interior page, we're seeing advertisements for Star Wars t-shirts and buttons. Communications. Now here's some interesting letters. This kid, Stephen Sandoval, from Fresno, California, says... There's been an argument in our house about Darth Vader. My dad thinks he's a robot, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) The response, Darth Vader, the malevolent Dark Lord of the Sith, is not a robot. Vader's stiff, robotic looks arise from an incident during his Jedi youth. In a recent issue of a rock fanzine, George Lucas explained that, after killing Luke's father, Darth fought Ben Kenobi. During the duel, he fell into a volcano. His horribly mutated body is now housed in this metallic suit, a walking iron lung. What do you think about that, huh? Well, they they kept a lot of that when they made the prequel movies, so that that pretty much is Darth Vader. Mm Mm-hmm. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Hugo Award winners. The 35th annual World Science Fiction Convention was held in Miami, Florida this past September. At the time... The Hugo Awards for 1977 were given out. Here are the winners. 
the Gandalf Award for Grandmaster of Fantasy, Andre Norton, the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, C.J. Shira, Best Professional Artist, Rick Sternbach. We've seen him at conventions before. Definitely. He's still amazing. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very active in the sci-fi community. Best Short Story, Tricentennial by Joe Haldeman. Best Novelette, The Bicentennial Man by Isaac Asimov. Best Novella, A Tie, by any other name by Spider Robinson. And Houston, Houston, Do You Read by James Tiptree Jr. Best Novel, Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang by Kate Wilhelm. There were four nominations in the running for Best Dramatic Presentation. Carrie, Future World, Logan's Run, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. No award was given in the announcement of the fact received a standing ovation. Star Wars will be eligible for nomination in that category at the next Worldcon. I mean, yeah, those were some good movies from back then. The Adventures of Flinks and Pip Alan Dean Foster seems to be the man that fans of Star Wars are looking to for further adventures of Luke Skywalker. Foster is writing a sequel novel that may very well be the basis for the film sequel. But there are many fans who only know Foster from his Star Trek log series and wonder why he was selected to write the sequel. Well, it's because that Alan Dean Foster has a background in science fiction and it talks about some of his other science fiction books. Exactly. And and that's why he they chose him to write the Star Wars books is because he has a background in sci-fi. Yeah. And, and I'm it, sure it's yeah, like the same reason he wrote the Star Trek books too, but he was, you know, but he's also a fan of these shows. And yes. franchises. And we know it to be Splinter of the Mind's Eye. But it's great to hear that they were toying with the idea, we know originally, that that could be the sequel. If there wasn't money to be made in Star Wars, it would be a lower budget. Something that was that they could afford not all the actors, but two of the actors back. But great book, though. New Disney Science Fiction Although Walt Disney Productions is thrilled and delighted ge- generations of youngsters with their fantasy films... They have never ventured very far into the realm of science fiction. Fortunately, this trend seems to be changing. Disney's most recent science fiction effort was Escape to Witch Mountain in 1975. Due to its success, they are shooting the sequel, Return from Witch Mountain, with Christopher Lee. I loved these movies when I was a kid. I saw them on TV. Yeah, that's why I saw them too. I never saw them in the movie theaters. I watched it on TV. And, yeah, you know what? They are, that, this is an example. It was science fiction, but once Star Wars came out, Disney changed gears. They had to go into space. Like with the black hole. <laughs> exactly. War of the Worlds, 25th anniversary. Well, there was the 25th anniversary of the War of the Worlds, and they brought back George Powell and some of the actors to have a gala event, which, just think about it. That must have been pretty cool. I mean, that 50s movie, War of the Worlds, War of the Worlds was awesome. But to have it publicly be re-released in theaters for the first time in 25 years, it must have been something really awesome because not everyone was able to see it the first time around. So it's almost like when they re-released the Star Wars movies, it was building it up for another generation. Yeah, because some people like yeah hadn't even been born yet when War of the Worlds first came out, and now they like it like suddenly there's a new audience for this kind of movie. George Clayton Johnson was in attendance, as well as Forrest J. Ackerman. 
So it brought out everyone. Very well-known people in the sci-fi world. Star Wars Disco Sparks Trend 1977 has been a Star Wars year. The phenomenal film has spawned an avalanche of Star Wars products. Books, toys, t-shirts, iron-ons, home movies, TV specials, bumper stickers, and surprisingly enough, a hit disco record. Titled, Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk. It's... It's a classic. You, you know, you hear that now, that, that Mecco version of Star Wars, the disco-fied one. I, I love it to this day. I, I think I have heard some of it from various places. It, I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And get this, here's another Kiss connection. Mecco called up Neil Bogart of Casablanca Records. Casablanca has been an advertiser for not only Kiss, but also for Angel. I mean, this actually, this issue that we're holding right now, the back cover is Kiss Alive too. So, they had the connection right there. Casablanca Records, their most popular disco act was Donna Summer and the Village People. So, this was a match made in heaven. That That's cool. The movies and the, the record company. which And later, like, soundtracks with record companies became so popular. Totally. Saucer Lands in New York. Rock Band Emerges. Oh, it talks about the combination of... Music and fantasy and science fiction, once again. Bootsy Collins and George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic. They had a spaceship land in New York City. They were filming a video, and they had to do it late at night. It also mentions how sci-fi rock band from Canada, Rush, moved one step closer to presenting the first science fiction musical novel. The quartet, well-known for their science fiction songs, 2112 and Anthem released their latest gold album, A Farewell to Kings. Darth Vader Unmasked. At last, the face behind the mask of that villain of villains can be shown. So they got some pictures of David Prowse while he was on the set of Space 1999. And you got to figure for this era before the internet, that's all they could do is just look for still photos. Of the actors in their previous work. David was in the episode The Beta Cloud. He played a robot sent by an alien race to steal Moonbase Alpha's light support system. He also appeared in various Hammer films, such as Frankenstein and The Monster from Hell. Prowse stands six foot seven inches tall. He was the undefeated British heavyweight weightlifting champion, having won the title in three consecutive years. So this is the first time that we're seeing in print some details about David Prowse. Yeah, I do remember uh, reading that he was a weightlifter. And so, so the thing is, these parts were, were probably all all villains. I mean, he because someone who's that tall, he probably looked very menacing, you know, being muscular and tall. And so he yes. played the villain in a lot of these. Yeah, that, that really sounds neat. And I don't think I've seen anything else with him besides Star Wars. I mean, you know... And seeing him in person is great. You know, he's a really nice guy, too. I mean, was. <laughs> was, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last time I saw him was at Dragon Con. Yeah. R2-D2 makes the rounds. So this is a promotional tour that R2-D2 was going on. He was a guest on the Dinosaur show. I remember watching Dinosaur. Did you just watch it as mm-hmm. a kid? I didn't watch that one. It was one of the ones that my grandparents watched, and I was just sitting in the room watching it with them she had her start here in nashville interestingly enough and also r2d2 was on stage with peter frampton 
Magic Lantern Works Wonders. This is an article about animation and how it was being fleshed out even more so in the late 70s. Because for most people at this time, when they heard the words animation, they thought immediately about Disney. Or maybe Popeye, Woody Woodpecker, Terry Toon cartoons, Looney Tunes. But there were some, like Ralph Baxi and Richard Williams, they were stepping it up a notch. They were actually making things more for the adult audience. Yeah, this was a company... I mean, they're, they're saying it was a company called Magic Lantern that was just two guys... And they had they had all these scripts ready to make movies, but they didn't really have any money. So that's what they were waiting for. So it's more of like a teaser of what could be happening in the future with animation. And they're showing some examples of Flash Gordon, which looks fantastic. And we know that Flash Gordon did go into an animated series. And then yes. later on, the license went over to a live-action movie, which was very different. And it also said they did a they did a project with Leonard Nimoy called Planets of the Sun. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a letter to Stanley Kubrick about how to break into the business, and his response was basically, just go do it, which is a pretty good idea. Hi, my name is Anthony Rooney, but my friends call me Roo. I've been asked by my friends at the Starlog podcast to review an article that appeared in issue 11 of that magazine concerning my all-time favourite television series, The Prisoner. Well, I was happy to do so, because I go back a long way with both The Prisoner and Starlog. I'm actually just old enough to remember the original broadcast of The Prisoner here in the UK back in 1967. I was, can you believe it, just five years old. The whole family used to gather around my grandpa's old black-and-white television set to watch the series. Those were the days when we only had free television channels to choose from, and they only broadcast for limited hours. There were no videotapes, no DVDs or Blu-rays, and certainly no streaming. If you missed something, you missed it. Perhaps forever. And no one wanted to miss The Prisoner. Patrick McGowan was a huge star back then, reputedly the highest paid actor on British television at the time. The role that had put McGowan on the map was that of globe-trotting spy John Drake in a series known here as Danger Man and across the pond as Secret Agent. The series was hugely popular in both the UK and America. Indeed, it had just started filming its first colour episodes when McGowan decided he'd had enough. And that's something to keep in mind for later. McGowan quit. The series wasn't cancelled. Patrick McGowan could have gone on playing John Drake for as long as there was a demand for episodes, which there was, but he wanted to do his own thing. McGowan's boss, Lou Grade, head of the incorporated television company, commonly known as ITC Entertainment, who made Danger Man Secret Agent, was anxious not to lose his leading man, and, in order to keep him, gave McGowan the financial backing to pursue a series of his own devising, a series called The Prisoner, a series about a man who unexpectedly resigns from his job, just as McGowan had done with Danger Man. So there we were, back in the late 1960s, gathered around the television, watching this brand new TV series starring the UK's most popular actor. Well, Roger Moore might have something to say on that last point, but... Never mind. 
As I mentioned earlier, I was barely five years old, and I've often wondered myself what it was about the prisoner that captured my imagination back then. It certainly wasn't the storylines, because I was far too young at that age to appreciate them. I can only think that it was the visuals. They stayed with me. That man, in his pipe blazer, being chased along a beach by a huge white balloon. Simple as that. It stuck with me. Some years later, in the 1970s, I was excited to see a repeat showing of The Prisoner listed in the TV guide. Unfortunately, it was airing just before Close Down on Wednesday nights. If you're too young to remember, Close Down was when television finished for the night, just before or just after midnight. The problem for me, though, was that as a teenager with school the next day, this meant I was going to have to plead on a week-by-week -week basis with my parents to be allowed to stay up late on a school night. Some weeks I was successful, and others I wasn't. Oh, and how I remember the pain of missing out on the schizoid man. An evil double story. I love evil double stories. Anyway, the prisoner was every bit as good, no, better, than I recalled from my foggy childhood memories. I wouldn't say I was the most rebellious teenager on the planet, but something about Number Six's rebellion against the village authorities resonated with me. I was now seeing the prisoner at just the right age to really appreciate it. Meanwhile, something else that was going on in my life back in the 1970s was that I'd become a huge fan of science fiction. Unsurprising, really, as I'd grown up with the space race in the 1960s and had watched Neil Armstrong step onto the surface of the moon, a memory that still sends shivers down my spine. In fact, I remember the night before standing looking up at the moon with my grandpa and thinking, there's an actual spaceship on its way to land on that. Star Trek is wonderful, but the real thing is even better. It must be said my obsession with science fiction was not well received by my peers, or even by the adults around me. Boys my age were meant to be obsessed with football and cricket, not spaceships, and especially not fictional spaceships. This, of course, was before Star Wars came along and put science fiction on everyone's radar. Before that, though, I had to work for my fandom. Once a month, I'd make my way into the city to a somewhat grubby basement bookshop that sold American comic books and pulp sci-fi novels. These were hidden at the very back of the shop. The front of the shop was given over to pornography. It's true, the owner was more ashamed of selling sci-fi and comics than of selling porn. Anyway, this was where I first discovered Starlog. And wow, what a mind-blowing event that was. A serious magazine devoted to science fiction, written by people knowledgeable on the subject. Oh, that was a special day, let me tell you. Up until then, I'd felt isolated alone with my love of sci-fi. Finding Starlog, for me, was a little like I'd been stranded on a desert island for years, and had suddenly found a message in a bottle from another castaway. I don't know if any of this will resonate with younger people listening to this, especially if you've grown up post-Star Wars in a world where being a sci-fi fan is much more acceptable. But this is why I love Starlog so much to this day. Returning to the 1970s, though, 
You might understand my excitement at finding a whole article in my favourite magazine devoted to The Prisoner. Dehumanisation. Loss of personal freedom. Subjugation of the individual to the will of the state. All of these are classic SF themes and can be found throughout the genre, from George Orwell's 1984 to Stanley Kubrick's 2001. These concepts are central in science fiction because they are also very real and present dangers of living in a modern, complex society. Imagine an SF TV show that concentrates on investigating these threats to personal rights, and you have envisioned The Prisoner. So begins Howard Zimmerman's introductory blurb for his article. And how lovely it was to hear someone taking the show seriously. You see, back then, whenever I mentioned The Prisoner to anyone, the usual response I'd get would be along the lines of, Ugh, that thing with Patrick McGowan being chased about by a balloon. Didn't understand a word of it. Load of old rubbish. Or words to that effect. The introductory text is accompanied by what, at the time, were some very welcome publicity stills from the series. Which was another thing I liked about Starlog. All those pictures. Again, you have to think yourself back to a time before the internet, or even, for most people, video recorders. Back then I would write begging letters to television companies pleading for any spare publicity stills from my favourite TV shows. Any cuttings from TV guides and newspapers were carefully collected and curated into my scrapbooks. I was making my own episode guides to my favourite TV shows long before Starlog came along. Who even knew that there were other people out there interested in such things? Not me, that's for sure. Meanwhile, not content with just one blurb, Mr Zimmerman gives us a second one for his article. Conceived and produced as a continuing allegory, called the greatest SF event of TV, interpreted alternately as modern mythology, a psychological study and a political statement, its message is clear. Modern society is a vast, collective prison, and each and every one of us is the prisoner. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm sure Howard Zimmerman sounds nothing at all like that. I just can't do an American accent without it sounding like a trailer for a Batman movie. This year. Sorry, I'll stop doing that now. Just to pick up on something in that second blurb, though. I know plenty of Prisoner fans who would object to calling the series SF. I sort of understand why. They see the Prisoner purely as allegory, and so find it hard to sit the series on the same shelf as, say, Star Trek or Doctor Who. I get that. But personally, I find that there are enough science fiction elements in the series to justify its inclusion in the pages of Starlog. I mean, just look at the mind transference device used in the episode Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. That's pure sci-fi. Elsewhere in the article, though, Mr Zimmerman makes a much more controversial statement, perhaps without even realising it. He says this. The Prisoner is an extension of McGowan's first highly successful series, Secret Agent. In it, he played John Drake, a British intelligence agent. But contrary to the James Bond image, 
Drake questioned the necessity as well as the morality of what he was doing. Most of the prisoner's 17 episodes open with a short scenario picturing Drake's resignation from the service. Well, you sound very sure of yourself there, Howard, but are you really so sure the hero of the prisoner was John Drake? This is the most controversial topic in prisoner fandom. Was the prisoner John Drake? The favourite argument used by those who support the idea that number six was John Drake is that McGowan could not use the character as it would have meant paying royalties to Drake's creator, Ralph Smart. At first glance, it's a plausible theory, but under closer scrutiny it soon falls apart. For one thing, why would McGowan quit playing John Drake only to decide to play the very same character in a new series? especially after being given carte blanche by Lou Grade to take on a role of his own choosing. If it was just a matter of the star not liking the show's format, then given the clout McGowan wielded, it would have been far simpler, and more cost-effective, to change the format of Danger Man into something approximating the prisoner. Other television shows have undergone radical changes to their format like this. For example, Burke's Law became Amos Burke's secret agent, in order to cash in on the spy craze of the 1960s, unsuccessfully as it happened. Given the amount of money being poured into the prisoner, it seems unlikely that McGowan and Grade wouldn't have stumped up a few extra quid for the use of Rolf Smart's character, if that is who the prisoner was intended to be. The main difference between the prisoner and John Drake, perhaps, is that number six exists in a more science fiction universe than the more down-to-earth reality John Drake inhabits. While Drake has access to some quite nifty gadgets, they're never quite so way out as to stretch the viewer's credulity. In the Prisoner universe, we not only have Rover, artificial life-form robot, or perhaps some synthesis of the two, but in the outside world we find Professor Seltzman and his mind-swapping machine, something that would have been quite out of place in an episode of Danger Man. Speaking in an issue of the TV Times from 1967, Patrick McGowan said this, There is no connection with Danger Man. You are not going to see a follow-up to that series. Well, to my mind, that seems pretty definitive. The Prisoner is a series that demands a lot from the viewer. Asking questions and not always giving answers. You have to think for yourself. Likewise, in his article... Howard Zimmerman asks the reader questions rather than providing answers. He teases, We could reveal the hidden meanings of all the symbols used, but that would be telling. Hmm, I wonder. Maybe he could give us all the answers, but those would be Howard Zimmerman's answers, and those might not necessarily tally with my interpretation or your interpretation of the series. The genius of the prisoner is that it truly is all things to all men and women. Howard does at least reveal the location of the village in the real world, Port Merion, in North Wales. When this issue of Starlog was published, I'd only just made my first visit there. Back then, my teenage self was only able to visit the village as a day visitor, but I promised myself that, when I was an adult, I would stay in Port Merion. I kept that promise, and have spent whole weeks and even fortnights there. Like most prisoner fans who make the pilgrimage, I was drawn to Port Merion because of the TV series, but fell in love with the place for its own charms. Port Merion really is the most remarkable place, and if you ever get the chance to visit, then please do. 
you won't be disappointed, though you might find yourself a little confused that the mental map of the village in your head doesn't quite tally with the reality. The filmmakers cheated a lot. When you watch Patrick McGowan stomping around the village on screen, some of the routes he takes don't make much sense if you know Port Merion for real. Oh, and the interior of his cottage is tiny, though it does house a shop devoted to the series, where you'll be able to stock up on pipe blazers, capes and numbered penny farthing badges. Watch out for those big balloons, though, as in real life they pop very easily, as I know to my cost. The substantial episode guide that makes up the bulk of the article was very welcome at the time, but even then I could see it wasn't terribly accurate. It reads like someone doing their very best to recall the episodes, but not quite getting it right. It's a valiant effort though, especially for a time before you could pluck a series off a shelf and play an episode at will. All in all, issue 11 of Starlog was a good one. Not just for the prisoner, but there were a lot of articles to enjoy. One disappointment for teenage me was that there were no pictures of Heather Menzies, aka Jessica from Logan's Run in that issue. Mind you, though, what about William F. Nolan putting David Gerald in his place in the letter column? Ooh! And Gerald was cutting up rough again on his own page. I suspect he was going through a phase of pretending he was Harlan Ellison. Anyway, I'll let your regular host discuss that one. Time to hand back over to them. It's been a pleasure chatting and reminiscing about Starlog. Thanks for listening. Be seeing you. Come on, Rover, I'll throw you a stick. Catch! Okay, convention report. I love looking at these old conventions. This one talks about SunCon, the 35th World Science Fiction Convention that was held in Miami, Florida, September 2nd through 5th, 1977. And at that time, there were already people making Star Wars costumes, even something as elaborate as a Chewbacca. So, yeah, and they probably were not um, making the costumes back then that you could buy, that you could, where you could order them or anything. This is true artistry. And so, for you yeah, to put so stuff people like just, this. you have to make Jawas, it up. It looks like a bunch of women just have robes with masks over their face, but, but, but they are Jawas. It says the Andrew Sisters of the Jawa clan. Oh yeah, they probably like had like, like you know costume contests back then, yes. where you and you know and people made up their their names for their characters. So yeah, that would that would be so cool to see this on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where the World Science Fiction Society had the Hugo Awards. There were pros, fans, and pro fan panel discussions, very similar to I think Dragon Con. I mean, like you look at these early conventions, and has a little bit of everything. Slideshows by the artists, scientists that were involved, nonstop showings of science fiction films, clinics, speeches, dealers' rooms overflowing with merchandise, authors, readings, a meet the professionals parties, lots of parties. Yeah, meet the professionals is what they had at Shore Leave. Something. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we went to Shore Leave, and that that was a very different experience doing it because that's like an old school way of doing it. Just have one night where you get to mingle with the professionals. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I forgot about that now that you're saying that. That's right. It says, uh, Star Wars was popular and evidence all over the convention. From Let the Wookiee Win and Give the Wookiee a Medal t-shirts and stickers to working toy lightsabers and a host of other related merchandise. 
The Sun Con was attended by three to five thousand fanatics, and nary a discouraging word. Hey, that brings us to a discussion of the latest convention that we went to, that being awesome one in Huntsville, Alabama. Huntsville Comic and Pop Expo. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we had a great time at that con. Let's, let's just talk about it since we're talking about conventions. It was, it was in Huntsville, and of course they, they still, um, had, had the COVID regulations, so everybody's wearing a mask and. But it's at a big convention center, it, the Vaudron Center. And yeah, it was at a big convention center, so they had the aisles, you know, wide aisles in the, in the vendor's room, and they had several panels and comic book artists signing autographs, and a few celebrity actors too. Absolutely. That's where we got to spend a quite a bit of time. My brother's making fun of me of how much time I spent with Jim Shooter, but I mean, we love talking to him. We've seen him at numerous conventions, and he has a treasure trove of stories. And we did a couple of panels there. Exactly. One especially was very popular. It was our first time releasing this panel, it which was entitled... Starlog, the world's greatest science fiction and fantasy magazine. And it was great to have teenagers attend the panel and ask a bunch of questions. And I think that teenagers found it so interesting, like what life was like before the Internet and how we got information and how we found out about conventions. And about how how much was was in this magazine? They kept saying, "Did Starlog talk about this and this?" And yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They couldn't believe that within time, Starlog talked about everything: James Bond, action movies. It was, it, it truly was. The producers understood what we wanted. So, w- when we give that convention at other con, uh, when we give that panel at other conventions, we're more than likely going to record it and then release it on the internet. But it was an excellent experience. The, the producers of this show do a wonderful job every year. We enjoy attending every year, and it's worth traveling for. We met people from various states that did that, exactly. We had fun there. This was our third time going, and, yeah, it, it's still a great time. That being said, in 1978, future conventions. Chattacon number three, January sixth through eighth, nineteen seventy eight, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ah, so number three was in seventy eight because yeah. that con is still going on. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Lunacon in New Jersey, February twenty fourth through twenty sixth, nineteen seventy eight. Afro American Con, Kalamazoo, Michigan, March fifth through eighth. Orange Con seventy eight, March seventeenth through eighteenth. In Orlando, Florida. AggieCon, College Station, Texas, March 30th through April 2nd. PhantasmaCon, 78, Los Angeles, California, May 26th through 29th. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, this is a whole article about Steven Spielberg and this amazing movie that came out at the end of 1977. So we know 77 had two blockbusters for sci-fi. Number one, Star Wars. Number two, Close Encounters. Two very different elements of sci-fi. So, yeah, Close Encounters was, I mean, of course, it was all on Earth. That's a big difference. Exactly. And, and, and in our time period, in the present time period that it was made. Totally, totally. It was, it was grounded in reality to a certain degree. We see it's speculative. 
Steven Spielberg was always interested. The article says that in 1964, a 16-year-old high school student wrote, directed, photographed, and edited a two-and-a-half-hour, eight-millimeter film titled Firelight. And this was Steven Spielberg doing this on his own with a budget of $500. He was very interested in, in finding out about UFOs and if there was life outside planet Earth. And it's probably why he's such an amazing uh, filmmaker. <laughs> yes, but, and it's a passion. Yeah. He has a passion for what he does. He's oh, not yes. just taking a job. He he tries to do all the research and to find out all he can to make his movies memorable. Did you see his movie when it first came out? Because I did not. No, I didn't either. I saw it on, on TV. I saw yeah. it on TV, too, in the early 80s. Because I remember having the Close Encounters action figure when it came out it was like a bendy figure they made a figure they, of one of the, of the aliens which was so strange in itself uh this movie it i don't think it was so much geared towards kids it was the exact opposite of star wars star wars i was super excited about close encounters are third kind i wanted to watch it because i knew it was science fiction but i didn't hear other kids my age really talking about it with excitement but it was like when i'd see pictures of the Mothership, I said, I want to see what this movie's like. It's the type of movie that I, I appreciate far more now as an adult than I did when I was a kid when I first saw it. It, it does seem like it's aimed more at adults. That is true, and it's um, and, and it's for, for UFO buffs. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of it was filmed in Alabama as well, which you don't hear a lot of movies being filmed in Alabama, in Mobile, Alabama, as a matter of fact. So they wanted more of a rural area and something that that looked um like like a lot of trees around, a lot of woods and forest. Mhm. They said they wanted to make it a realistic movie. And I think they pulled it off perfectly because it really did look realistic. And also and the people in the movie, they felt like real people. They did. I mean the the guy in the movie was just so strange, but he was so it was like he was possessed mm-hmm. by by the by the aliens just by having seen them. The one of the things we noticed, like like right at the beginning, it was so similar to Poltergeist, which Spielberg hadn't made yet. But the mm-hmm. the toys that just sort of came to life on their own. We both looked at each other and said the same <laughs> thing. Didn't you feel like Poltergeist? Yeah. And also the aliens at the end looked like E. T. We had to say that, it's so too. so true. Yeah, so there's... It's one of those movies, if you're a sci-fi fan, you have to watch it. This is one of the ones, the classics from the 70s, that's a springboard for, for others. I mean, you notice things in it now that you wouldn't have if, when when it came out. Agreed. Now, the article says that there were production problems, and it, it was very difficult dealing with. Well, there was some animation that was made, but then they decided to drop it because... It just didn't fit the story they were doing. And reading about this and thinking about the movie now, I can imagine why they would want to put animation in it. Yeah, when you think about I don't it think now, it would fit. It, it's like why? Yeah, why did they even think about it? But the article keeps comparing it to Star Wars, which which shows how how big Star Wars was. It's just everything. It it just set the new standard. Of course, of course. And the, once it was announced, this was going to be a big budget science fiction movie. That's where the expectations were. And even when you look at the movie posters, it, they were striking, and they had a sense of mystery to them. They purposely did not show what the aliens were going to look like. I mean, that's to keep the interest up, which 
you know, you know, this movie was it was successful, but still not as much as Star Wars. Mentions the special effects here. They put so much effort into it. And they ask the question. All during the filming and subsequent summer post-production months, questions were raised. Would it be worth the money spent? Would it be better than 2001? Would it be better than Star Wars? Trumbull does not seem to be worried. The film's last 40 minutes combine live action and effects. It makes the ultimate trip from 2001 look pale by comparison. You won't believe your eyes when you see it. What do you think about that statement? I think it's true. Yeah, yeah. The it's last true. the yeah. last forty minutes was all um, just looking at the ships, really, and then mm-hmm. and then the the people walking off of the ships. It built so much momentum. Yeah, it did, and it's like, but you but you're sitting there staring. It seemed like it was really more slower paced, but you but you want to know what's going to happen. So but that's the, why I say it's a better movie as an adult because I actually want a slower. I don't want it to be Star Wars. I want Star Wars to be Star Wars. I want this to just be more thought provoking, more intriguing. And I think they, they did a wonderful job. Having it go that, that slow, it built mm-hmm. up the anticipation. And it made you want to see more. And and then what what you see is just, like, you see, like, some of the humans that have disappeared that come out. And and you're like, oh, okay, so they've had these people there all this time. And, and, and also I like how the, you know, the military guy that met them said, welcome back. And he said, you know... We'll, we'll show you around. I mean, exactly. Yeah, except it was a bookend to a degree. Yeah, you know, we started the movie wondering about lost ships. So yeah, I, I I think they they really did a wonderful job with it, visually as well as story wise. TV update: Logan's Run gets production designer. Well, this is a funny article because it's TV update about Logan's Run. But the show was struggling, and it was about to be canceled. Yeah, I mean, but they still had to report on it. It was something. Yeah, true. It, something to talk about. It was something on TV at the time. And they showed some new devices, and a portable laser cannon would be used. Also, Buck Rogers destined for TV. Clearly encouraged by the success of Star Wars and fascinated by the concept of large-scale science fiction on TV, NBC has commissioned Universal Studios to produce a weekly series of hour-long episodes to be set in the 25th century to feature the classic science fiction hero, Buck Rogers. Boy. Gee, did they do that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's one of your favorites. We both loved watching that growing up. I mean, this was the heyday for science fiction on television. Star Wars ushered all this in. And there's even an ad here that says... Star Wars owes it all to Buck Rogers, the original interplanetary adventure. Oh, okay. They're saying Star <laughs> Wars owes it to, yeah. <laughs> because Buck Rogers was an old comic from, what, the, the 1930s? What, 30s? Yeah. yeah. It, but George Lucas did say he wanted to make serials. That's what he grew up watching. He well, couldn't get the like, rights yeah. to Flash Gordon. Right, yeah. Things like Flash yeah. Gordon and Buck Rogers is what he liked. Sure. Same actor, Buster Crab. Yes. So. New headquarters from Man from Atlantis. Here we go. Um, more reports on a TV show that's a sinking ship. Gives you a diagram of the new Man from Atlantis headquarters. It was a great interview with Patrick Duffy, previously in Starlog. Yeah, he he's a great guy. I mean, you know, at least he went on to um to become a star. Hello, my name is Paul Haber. And I'm going to speak about David Gerold's column. I read Starlock a lot growing up, and I was a big fan of David's column. 
At first, it was called state-of-the-art, then rumblings, and finally it was changed to soaring. This issue came off as a sort of apology. If I remember correctly, there was a backlash after Gerald made some comments about the main plot of Logan's Run and everybody dying at a certain age to keep the population down. That's surprising because the best science fiction comes from taking real-life problems and concerns and placing them in a futuristic setting. Star Trek was big on this. Speaking of Star Trek, Gerald claims that the cast of Logan's Run is the happiest family since Star Trek. What, is he kidding? It's since been revealed that there was massive amounts of fighting between cast members, mostly the Tier 2 characters and William Shatner. The author of the world of Star Trek should know this, and if he did, why did he cover it up? As for his opinion of Gregory Harrison, I believe that to be accurate. Although I did find his acting to be a little stiff. I believe Gregory was not com comfortable with science fiction. He was much more relaxed when he played Gonzo on Trapper John almost immediately after Logan's run ended. Unfortunately, Heather Menzies did not have much to do and was pushed into the background by Rem. They really never defined the romantic relationship of Logan and Jessica. What was so important to the movie, here they were unsure of it, and they treated them more like brother and sister. I see why they did it. Week after week, it would be hard to bring in guest stars and not have them have more any sexual chemistry with the leads. I never warmed up to Ram, and he just was a plot device. He'd fix anything or spill information. Randy Powell was great as Francis, just like Richard Jordan was in the movie. Not evil in any sense, but a dedicated executioner who enjoyed his job maybe a little too much. As for David Gerald's episode, Man at a Time, I did not care for that very much. I will chalk it up to how badly they rewrote it. It's a shame he did not get to see how it was originally written. Since the 1970s, that particular plot has been used many times. I did enjoy the Harlan Ellison episode, which they claim was also heavily rewritten. The Logan's Run television show was similar to so many other TV shows. The Fugitive, The Hulk, The A-Team, and The Phoenix. In all these shows, the hero gets involved in the problems of the new place he arrived in. He gets involved, rights the wrong, and gets out of town with the authorities hot on his heels. Everything it had were all these great science fiction writers. It was not a success. The world wasn't ready for this. As far as I know, there's not really been a primetime science fiction show since then that has been a hit, most of them being syndicated. Finally, there was Buck Rogers. What a disaster that was. David Gerald warned us that it would change, but how far it changed from his original concept to what we got was so difficult. It's a shame that the group of science fiction creators at the in the 70s was so much farther ahead than what they were able to 
actually put down on paper. I wish we had gotten a Buck Rogers that was more like what he wanted as opposed to what we actually got. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast. While I never read this particular issue, and after reading the Superman article, I wish I would have, I did enjoy reading several issues growing up in the mid-1970s. I was also a fan of a sister publication called Future, which not only dealt with science fiction, but also real science. But it only lasted four or five years and didn't know the length of success that Starlog magazine did. The article I'm going to look at begins on page 56 and is titled, Ilya Salkind, the producer of Superman, chronicles the continuing evolution of a legend, written by Richard Myers. The article provides a lot of background information on the development of the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie, which would eventually be released at the end of 1978. It begins with a discussion of the casting decisions between Saul Kind and his production partner Pierre Spangler, then how the film evolved from idea to production. Superman was their next project after their successful films The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. What the article doesn't mention is that after these two movies were released, the Screen Actors Guild eventually created a clause which has come to be called the Salkind Clause because they paid the cast and crew for one movie, The Three Musketeers, but they filmed enough scenes to produce two movies. So the actors were paid for one movie but wound up acting in two separate films. Not only were the actors not happy about that, but neither was the Screen Actors Guild, and eventually they created this clause in all actors' contracts that prevents film producers from ever attempting the same thing again. The first step was to find a screenwriter. First, Saul Kind approached William Goldman, who wrote the script to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and all the president's men. But after a few stabs at the concept, he handed the project back, and after a search for a new writer, he settled on Mario Puzo, the novelist who wrote The Godfather. Puzo worked on the script while Saul Kind dealt with Warner Brothers, who owned DC Comics since 1969, and in another side note, when Puzo was researching the archives of DC Comics, he was escorted by the main Superman writers of the time, Elliot S. Magan and Kerry Bates. And while they were doing research, they smoked some nice cigars. And then eventually Puzo came to conclude that Superman was a Greek tragedy. Even though Warner Brothers had owned DC Comics since the two companies merged in 1969, Warner Brothers was slow to realize the potential that their superhero character had. It took Saul Kind six months to secure the rights for 25 years, which would give them plenty of time for potential sequels. Puzo would hand in a 150-page script, but begged off any revisions by claiming he had played out everything he had to contribute. 
So, a screenwriting couple named David and Leslie Newman, along with their partner Robert Benton, were brought in on the project to begin revisions. They were responsible for the scripts Bonnie and Clyde and the Late Show films. Saul Kind was under pressure to get a big star for the role of the Man of Steel, and among other famous actors, luckily Robert Redford was unavailable. But the production picked up steam when he succeeded in signing Marlon Brando for the role of Jor-el, and then Gene Hackman to portray Lex Luthor. Guy Hamilton was originally hired as the director when production was planned to be done in Italy, and among Hamilton's film credits were four of the early Bond films. But when production switched to England, Hamilton had to drop out. Because of tax issues, while the article doesn't explain this, Guy Hamilton was a tax exile from Great Britain because of the high tax bracket he was in, which would limit the number of days he could be in country before he would be considered a resident. Richard Donner, whose most recent big hit was as director of The Omen, was brought in as director. The challenge of casting the leading role was settled when Christopher Reeve won the role. His acting skills made him perfect for the role, but his physique lacked a bit, which he corrected by doing a lot of physical training and lifting weights. The final role cast for the film was Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. Salkind displayed a bit of knowledge about the history of Superman comic books. When he discussed some of the different origins that have been published over the years up to that point, that differed slightly in some of the details. For the film, Salkind revealed that Jorah will play a significant role in influencing his son as he establishes a life on Earth, enough to make Brando request top billing. Because of the challenges of the production, the budget grew from 30 million to 40 million. Part of the reason was the large cast, and also the fact that there were six different crews. At the time of the article, the target deadline was March 1978 for the film's release, but it was pushed back about six months and would premiere in mid-December of that year. Also, in this article, there was a sidebar titled "Superman Flies Back Home to England." The Starlog writer Richard Myers flew to Pinewood Studios in Great Britain, where a giant Superman figure was hung outside the wall of the studio building, where a lot of the sets were built. Myers described some of the items used by the special effects crews, as well as the fact that past Superman actors Kirk Allen, who portrayed the Man of Steel in two 1940s movie serials. And Noel Neal, who not only played Lois Lane in the same movie serials, but would also do it again on TV, beginning in the second season of the Adventures of Superman TV show. Richard Lester was hired as a co-producer, and the article doesn't mention here, but he would later take over as director of Superman Two from Richard Donner. Salkind also provides some details about how complex the production was. And all of the pieces of the pie he needed to keep track of. I never read this article when it was originally published, but if I would have, it would have raised my excitement quite a bit for the film, 
and maybe motivated me to actually watch the film in the theater. Growing up, we didn't go to the movies a lot because we didn't have a lot of extra money to go to the theater every week. But I did see it when it premiered on TV. Superman the movie would obviously live up to the hype of the article and then some. A lot of the information in this article would eventually be released over the years, especially in the special features of various DVD and Blu-ray releases of Superman the movie. I enjoyed reading the article about the film, which blazed a trail by proving for the very first time that a superhero movie could fly to the top of the box office. Again, I would like to thank the hosts of the Star Pod Log podcast for inviting me to be a part of this episode. I began doing my podcast, the Superman Fan Podcast, back in 2008. I began by just picking a topic about the history of the Man of Steel, whatever happened to catch my interest that week, and eventually it evolved into an index of the Silver Age of Superman comics, beginning in 2011 thanks to a number of Superman podcasts that arose in 2010 that touched on every era of Superman comics history except for the Silver Age. And being born in 1960, I was right in the middle of the Silver Age of comic books, especially Superman, who was my favorite character growing up. So beginning in 2011... I've been chronicling all of the Superman stories published in Action Comics, Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. I'm up to the middle of 1966, and I plan on keeping on covering Superman comic books once I reach the end of the Silver Age my website is the Superman Fan Podcast dot blogspot dot com. Starlog presents Magical Techniques of Movie and TV Special Effects. The Makeup Men. So these are short interviews with various individuals that are involved in production of makeup. I like how it has an interview with Stuart Freeborn, and we know Stuart Freeborn for his work in Star Wars. He did the cantina scene, which is amazing. Yes. Yeah, the article says Many he, of like... The, the creatures in the cantina scene. He kind of grew up creating a, lo- a lot of things on his own, and so he had all this stuff still around. And, and at all, this yeah. time, he's been doing makeup for 41 years. He started when he was younger. And it shows a picture of him touching up the lips of Chewbacca. Yeah, he he was like he was an amazing designer, and and it says he tried for a long time to get into a studio before he actually uh, was able to do something. I mean, can you imagine that? This guys he's so creative as well. He's the one who's credited with creating Greedo. I mean, if we didn't have Stuart Freeborn, we wouldn't have one of our most favorite creatures from the cantina. It's just amazing to think about that it... I mean, if it weren't for his um, tenacity to begin with, yes. then it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, his, his job just not didn't fall into place. Rick Baker. He's quoted by saying, There are people in higher positions who tell you how they want it, and you have to do it their way. Rick started out in Cloaky Productions, which was incredible because I love Davy and Goliath. I love Gumby. 
So he started out with the puppet field and then moved on into makeup and effects. Well, the puppet field has um, some related things, too. Designing the puppets, and they can be creatures that, I mean, they can look anything like you want. Mm -hmm. Also, he did work with King Kong, and he put a lot of effort into King Kong. Yeah, that's amazing, too. Yeah, so so they've got all these these people who have been around for so long. Yes, and and they've built a name for themselves over the years, and we're seeing in these articles that they had to work extremely hard at their craft. They did it didn't just happen. They had to keep trying and failing, and they talk about their failures very candidly because that's you, you learn from doing something wrong sometimes. And an, another thing with Rick Baker was he was very frustrated with all the work that he was doing on King Kong. That wasn't appreciated, but he was tenacious enough to work with with Star Wars. He actually showed his portfolio to George Lucas, and George liked his work. Which is incredible. I mean, yeah, that it, that it even had the opportunity to do that. And he, this is the funny thing is, because he was not working on what he assumed would be foreground creatures, he didn't actually put the effort into some of them that he would want to have had. But some of his creatures were put in the foreground. So it's kind of funny when you think about Star Wars, they weren't communicating as well. The directors, the producers, the people who were working on the set, they were still kind of figuring it out. They were scrambling around. And and that's what he relates here is that all the stuff was shot on completely different different times. He really didn't know what was going to make the cut and what wouldn't. And if he had some say in it, he would have changed things around a little bit. And I've always heard making movies is like that. It's not exact and not all the people. Yeah, a lot of the, like the artists behind the scenes, they don't know what, what's really going to happen in the end. They're not, they're not the ones in control of it. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Howard Chaykin. When I want to hear more about my own work in any context that matters to me, I turn into Star Podlog, which makes my head explode. Thanks, and have a great day. We're here with comic book legend Jim Shooter. Mr. Shooter, welcome. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. So, you grew up with comic books, science fiction. Let's talk about the connection of science fiction and comic books. What were some of your favorite connections? Well, I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of science in, in comics for a long time. I did. I tried to do some. Uh, it was mostly science fantasy. I mean, yes. and uh, uh, but I, whenever there was something that seemed more credible or, or, or more real to me, even if it was in the middle of a fantasy, it just it made it uh, resonate. I mean, uh, for instance. At, at DC Comics, a Superman picked, and I'm talking when I was young, yes. in, in the 50s and early 60s. If Superman were to pick up a building, it was flat on the bottom. Okay. Yeah, was, no plumbing, no electricity. It, it's kind of like these Ant-Man movies now. Yeah, like it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was unreal. And, and even as a kid, that didn't look right to me. But when Jack Kirby had some giant character or a monster or something walking down the street, the street cracked under its feet. Little touches like that that just made it so real. And I don't know if anybody noticed but me, but, but when Ditko had Spider-Man swinging on his web, Ditko understood the laws of pendular motion. It worked. He swung around a building. Yeah, it worked. It was right. And, and so, I mean, I always love that kind of stuff. I like the, that attention to detail and that, that, that um, uh, verisimilitude, I guess is the right word. What about things like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers? Were you into stuff like that? 
Oh, I, yeah, I, I read as much of that kind of thing as I could. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, of uh, uh, Flash Gordon around when I was a kid, but but I did come across some reprints, and I did I did read them. There, I thought, I said, where's the rest? Where's the rest? Um, but uh, uh, no, and I, as a kid, I, I very young, I started reading H.G. Uh, Wells, Jules Verne, uh, all the like kind of classic stuff, uh, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, things like that. And uh, loved it, loved it, loved it, and and um, you know, and I loved the comics too, even though they were fantastic and fantasy. You come from a planet with a red sun, and now you can you have godlike powers. Uh, I don't know, but um, uh, it just it you know I, I I that's okay. I liked it anyway. Uh, but when I had my chance uh, to do it myself, you know, I, I I tried to make things real and and, and credible. It's it's not even. A lot of people say suspension of disbelief. You don't ever really believe that there's a Toontown and a Roger Rabbit, but if if it's if it if it's uh, uh, if it hangs together, if it if it makes sense in its own context, if it if, if of all the pieces, you know, it, it, it are consistent, then then it's okay. Then you can abandon yourself into it. It's it's as a matter of being convincing rather than you know. Uh, getting anybody to actually believe that you know uh, there's uh, Superman flying around in space. Now it's interesting. In the '70s, Marvel and DC were picking up a lot of licenses. I remember especially Marvel with War of the Worlds and Logan's Run. I mean, what was the deal with the licensing of just trying to pick up as much as they could, trying to bring science fiction fans into comics? What, what do you think the motivation was, especially during the '70s? Well, I, I don't think it was that noble a motivation. I think they they just thought thought something might be hot and they were hoping to sell it and make some money. Um, that most of what you just said was before I was the editor in chief, uh, and uh, just before I was the editor in chief was Star Wars, which just kept us alive, saved us till we turned things around. We need to talk about that. The Star Wars comics, how they came out before the movies. Yeah, well, we had a really good deal. I mean, George Lucas uh, was always interested in comics. He was a half-owner of a comic shop on the Upper East Side of New York. It was called the uh, Super Snipe Comic Book Emporium. And uh, he, uh, so he was always intrigued with comics. And he really wanted there to be a comic. And, of course, Roy was the champion at Marvel trying to get it done. And he got his way. His, you know, Roy had a lot of clout, and, and uh, even when he was an editor-in-chief. And uh, I think George was... You know, he instructed his people to be as accommodating as possible, and the ideal circumstance would be that our first book would launch when their TV advertising launched, and the second book would come out during the TV advertising, and the third one would come out when the movie broke. And they all did real well, and when, when the movie hit, man, that third issue, back to press, back to press, back to press, I don't know how many copies, but a lot. Yeah, great deal. I've heard it being said many times that during that era, the Star Wars comics actually saved Marvel Comics financially. Absolutely. I mean, when I started at Marvel in January of 1976, uh, the previous year, Marvel was under break-even. Not too much, but some money. And the other half of Marvel, which people don't know about, was called Magazine Management Incorporated. They did soap opera magazines, men's magazines, crossword puzzle books, things like that. And they were losing uh, nearly $3 million. Well, for a small, they, they, Marvel belonged to a small conglomerate called Cadence. And when one of your units is losing $3 million in those days, that's a big deal. Close the place down, sell it, get rid of it. You know, um, 
So uh, it was a kind of desperate times, and we were kind of hanging on by a thread. I think, uh, you know, if it wasn't for uh, uh, Roy uh, getting us to do Star Wars, which brought in a lot of revenues, well, we surely would have gone out of business or gone all reprint and had a staff of free people and stuff like that. But um, And it brought in a new fan base, too. I mean, I think that's one of the big things about science fiction comics is one of my first comic books I ever got was a Star Wars comic. Yeah, yeah I think it brought in some science fiction fans, but it also just brought in fans because everybody in the world loved Star Wars. You know, it was everybody went to see Star Wars. And, and then it finally dawned on those people, and maybe I was part of raising this awareness, that's the bait. You put Star Wars on a, on, a, on a spinner rack, and kids who would walk right past Daredevil, not think anything of it, they see Star Wars. Exactly what happened, yes. Yeah, their eyes light up. They, they read that. It's great. They love it. So maybe now they try Daredevil. And my, my theory was always, or maybe they try Superman. Who cares? We're trying to save a dying industry, you know? Um, and I got into the Avengers Korvac saga just after that, too. And that was you. That high science fiction elements there. Yeah, I really tried. Actually, I got an award from a science... I can't remember the name of the organization, but a science fiction club in New Jersey gave me an award for the best sci-fi comic of the of the year. And uh, that was nice. That yeah. was great. You know, got to go to a little banquet and get an award and stuff. Um, and it was so... so. But I, I... Again, it was... I inherited Marvel. Marvel was a fantasy-based universe. Mm-hmm. When fan, Stan first started doing the Fantastic Four, his idea was to make it more realistic. Okay. But when you've got Jack Kirby, sooner or later you're going to have blue areas on the moon and you're going to have Atlantis under the ocean and you have repulsor rays. and You know, I mean, it, 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 Jack was just, he, he was you, you couldn't bridle him. He, he, he just was uh, explosive with his creative ideas. And the second part of that is that Stan didn't really know enough science. Stan had Spider-Man ground himself so Electro's bolts wouldn't hurt him. <laughs> I'm, Stan, how many kids are going to die from this, you know? Uh, but, I mean, you know, he, he wasn't a real science, science head. I had a pretty good background in science, and, um, and so I was determined to try to bring some, some more of that convincingness and also more um, some, some good science to, to it, even to Marvel. But then later when I was on my own, I was able to, to you know, up the ante a little bit and, and try to make things work. I'll tell you a little story science-wise. Um, the Intel Corporation had a, a, a senior executive whose title was Futurist, Brian David Johnson. And um, uh, when I was working for Dark Horse doing Dr. Solar and Magnus, uh, uh, he read some of my books. And um, he, he was impressed. For instance, I, one of the first conversations he said, he said, I've spoken to nuclear physicists who say that that fusion reactor you designed would work. Wow. <laughs> and, and he said, he said, he said, we don't have the technology quite yet, but it would work. P.S. A couple of years ago, they actually tested a reactor based, not based on my, but like what I thought of, and it worked. Nice. They only lasted for a couple seconds, but it, you know, they they they, uh, they made it. They they can do it. You know, someday there there might be a reactor like that. So they, anyway, he he was impressed with that, and he asked me to work on this thing he had called the Tomorrow Project, where they you'd pick couple areas, an area or two of uh, things that Intel was researching, think 40 years in the future and write a story. And so I did that. And uh, uh, my two things I picked were artificial intelligence 
and genetic engineering. But I wrote a story for Intel for the Tomorrow Project for that. They liked it. It was it was it came out really good. Uh, it was uh, about the first human being who was entirely built from bio bricks, whose DNA was entirely assembled from bio bricks, and the and also uh, the singularity, the computer that finally breaks through, and it's it, it, it's and, and they. They become friends. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's it's an interesting little story. They liked it. But, you know, I've always, you know, been kind of a science nut. In fact, on that story, uh, Brian David Johnson uh, used to go around doing lectures at the universities and so forth. And at the University of Washington, he gave a lecture uh, and a slideshow entitled The Scientific Process of Jim Shooter. And it was all about my solar, intel, you know, artificial intelligence in, in Magnus and my, um, uh, uh, yeah, my, my it's fusion technology and stuff like that in, in solar. It was really great. I have a copy of the, of the uh, slideshow. It's, it's, it's so cool. I mean, we just love the science fiction comics of the 70s especially, and it's, it's amazing the plethora that was there. Atari. Sorry, Miss Channing. You gonna slam dunk me, Atari? The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Don't watch television tonight. Play it. Starlog Magazine, issue number 12, March of 1978. We have a Close Encounters of the Third Kind cover. So it was still huge at that time. Yes, and and I have to say, I do find this cover somewhat disappointing. I would have liked to have seen a massive mothership. This one's a little bit too dark. It has some inserts with some photos of the cast and crew. Eh, some, some Sarlogs are absolutely incredible. How they look visually, this one, it just doesn't jump out at me. Actually, in the in the Starlog group on Facebook, they they talked about how they did some of the covers. I mean, like like you, like sometimes they had to get special permission to use one of the fantastic pictures. And oh, interesting. Sometimes so the best pictures were given to another magazine, and only that magazine could oh, use it. Yeah, and yeah. Things like that. Log entries: latest news from the worlds of science fiction. The next sci-fi craze. Science fiction and fantasy are everywhere, on shirts, on records, in print, in ads, on jewelry, and on stage. Their influence is also evident in a great variety of American pastimes, most notably on pinball machines. And you know, we go to video game conventions and pinball arcades, and that is something that you do notice from the late 70s, is there are a bunch of pinball games that to have a science fiction twist to it. They said, look out for new science fiction titles such as Solar City, Superspin, Mars Trek, and Skylab. They, they probably figured out that these kids that play pinball are into sci-fi. Oh, it's, it's, it's all like, connected. Yeah. It's all connected. How many times have we had said, if you grew up in our era, there's certain things you're probably going to like. You're probably going to like classic video games. You're probably going to like comic books and superheroes. You're probably going to like wrestling. If you don't like everything, you're going to cross-section somehow, some way. Like the geek community at that time, what, what, this was all This is all we loved doing. We, we didn't have the Internet, so we had to go out and do stuff. And it, it was all there. I mean, the, yeah, those were the things that you had access to, the games and the comic books. And... 
you know, for for kids. I mean, if you didn't live in the right area, you probably couldn't go to a con. That's but right. you had you had your other things that you were interested in. Yeah, in our area, we didn't have a neighborhood arcade. Well, here, this is another thing. I remember in the late 70s, my father bringing my brother and I to bars and playing pinball machines. That People can't believe it now, but kids were allowed in bars. My dad would sit at the bar, and we'd be spinning at the other end of the bar on a bar stool. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, you, Yeah, because that's how you play. You, you, yeah, yeah, you yeah, could yeah. spin around uh, on but the it, stool. But it, was, but it was just like... If you tell someone, yeah, um, I'm going to bring my kid to the bar. He'll occupy himself while I'm drinking. They'd put you away. <laughs> but it was a different world back then. Yeah, I never heard of that either. <laughs> <laughs> iRobot. Intergalactic band hits airwaves. Arista Records, the record company responsible for the soundtrack album of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, has recently released two more entries in the rock science fiction sweepstakes. iRobot by the Alan... Parsons Project, and the Intergalactic Touring Band by a horde of rock notables. Here's an advertisement for Making Star Wars, which is an 80-page book, large, 8.5 by 11, with interviews. From Star Wars to Car Wars. Mark Hamill, the swashbuckling Luke Skywalker of Star Wars, and Kim Milford, the alien-controlled Billy of Laser Blast, will be fighting their battles on good old terra firma this spring with the release of MGM's Stingray, the story of a boy and his car. I never saw this before. But Mark Hamill was fast in doing something post-Star Wars. So he was looking for other jobs. Yeah. Immediately. New Kuntz Psychic Thriller is released, The Vision. Now here's the funny thing. I was reading Dean Kuntz books in the 90s. Because I was reading Stephen King's books a lot at that time. And if you were reading one, you also read the other. I, I, th this is one of those things that it's amazing that he was popular with science fiction fans in the late 70s. That is amazing. It was just something He's that... He's got longevity. Like, yes, yes. And and, I, and so people actually did read his books back then, the sci-fi books. Mm -hmm. New science fiction calendars. Now, this was a big deal back in the day. Do you remember that? Getting your calendar... And wanted to get a calendar with pictures that you wanted? I, I had Star Trek calendars. Of course. <laughs> New science fiction calendars this year included Dune, Monster Calendar, Star Wars Calendar, and then there's the Star Trek calendar. I remember wanting a calendar one year and my grandfather was saying, it's a waste of money, kid. They give them to you for free at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not, I not the those Tolkien kind calendar. of calendars. <laughs> yeah, I wanted a Tolkien calendar so badly with the Heilbrand art. TV update. The 1977-1978 TV season is currently cutting two of its science fiction shows, that being Logan's Run and The Man from Atlantis. Wah, wah. Well, <laughs> we saw that coming. <laughs> when a human wields a weapon from the stars, intergalactic chaos breaks loose. Kim Milford, laser blast hero, tells of Alien dangers both on and off screen. Laser blast. Alright, do you remember in Starlog a couple issues ago, someone wrote in and said, Starlog, why do you report on bad science fiction? Why not just report on good science fiction? And the editor said, well, we're going to report on all science fiction, and we let the readers decide for themselves what is good and what is bad. Which we both agreed, that's 
That's what you should do. That's, you know, that's how news used to be years ago. Yeah. No one took sides. You just laid down the facts and you let people decide for themselves. <sighs> this was a rough movie, though. Laser Blast, this definitely falls into the category of we don't need this much space devoted to this horrible movie. Yeah, but I think, well, so they didn't really know that it was going to turn out to be that bad. <laughs> oh, it, it was, it was just atrocious. Uh, it was, it looked like it was just made on someone's camcorder. It was, it was just, it was just beyond terrible. It's got to be one of the worst movies I've seen. Now it's, now we call them like B movie classics or things that you just watch when you're drunk just for fun. <laughs> what did you think about Laser Blast? I didn't think much of it. Yeah, you, you know, like like a Dragon Con in the Con Suite, they'll have a movie running sometimes, and that's it's a movie kind of like this. Yeah, you're right. yeah, it's it's one of those type <laughs> of movies that they would just show in the background, and people and nobody has seen it, so that that's why they'll go and look at it because you haven't seen it before. But it's one of those that like nobody really wants to see. <laughs> you're right. And then to follow up on this, Starship Invasions. An article about this atrocious movie. That one had a little better um, aesthetics in it than, than Laser Blast. Wise, yes, yeah. it did. Uh, and it did have Christopher Lee in it. But again, it's a movie of what in the world is going on here. It's aliens that were living under the ocean, aliens that were coming up from the sky, and... And and, were, and yeah, with the aliens, there were different factions. I mean, they sort yes. of had the good guys and bad guys that were you know from the alien planet. So, so yeah, I got some of the story, but yeah, then it got kind of it got convoluted. convoluted. It sure did, but it had Robert Vaughn in there. It's, it, I think it's funny that you're getting actors in here that actually have some credibility. What were they thinking when they looked at the script? Did they say, "I desperately need a job. I'll just, I'll just do it. I don't care." I mean, Christopher Lee, he was doing Hammer horror films before this. Why, why was he picking up something? Maybe they didn't even know that it was going to be that bad. It's one of those things that, yeah, the actors probably looked back on it and said, why did I do it? <laughs> UFOs, real versus real. Well, I think that Close Encounters sparked a lot of interest in real UFO sightings during this time. And this it, article it talks did. about that. Yeah, the the article actually says that, that movies actually cause more sightings of UFOs. It's like, you, you know, once you see the movie and the idea gets in your head, then you go out and, and see something and you just immediately think UFO. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the UFO sightings got to be such a big thing that they have, you know, there are people who study them and there's a name for those people, ufologists. <laughs> I, I do think it's fascinating. And, and you do see a lot of similarities with what people see. I mean, the Project Blue Book, that's been going on for decades before the 70s. So this UFO is not a new phenomenon. It's not. It's just something that, like, became big at this time because of the Close Encounters movie. And, and the um, there was that UFO book that, um, that, that came out, of, like, in the early 70s, and it became popular. Uh, the book by, he I know his last name was Hynek. And he was, so he was this UFO expert, and he wrote this book that everyone just thought was so fascinating. The article brings out that it's the conscious and subconscious minds of the population are primed for a burst of new UFO stories. And, and I know I saw something on TV one time that said 
you know, even about the UFO abductions, um, people used to say that they were possessed by aliens or, or possessed by demons. And then later, like, instead of the demons, it became be, being um, abducted by a UFO. I mean, mm. like, yeah, people's stories kind of change with the times it, because it, it becomes whatever is popular at that time. Again, again, yeah, it's the subconscious dictating which direction you're going to credit what you see or yes. what you feel. Oh, and it actually says one of the things they – like if someone saw a UFO, one of the things that you have to ask them is, did you see a UFO movie before? <laughs> I mean it's yeah, just – Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to see what their background was. Yes. Mm-hmm. The secrecy is over. The controversy has begun. Steve, Steven Spielberg's dazzling UFO dream come true remains a mystery to many moviegoers, including the director himself. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So this article talks about, again, Close Encounters and his background, Steven Spielberg. We know he had a hit with Jaws. And that's what brought people who were not science fiction fans into the movie theaters. And Spielberg was was a genius at such a young age. He's 29 at this time of this article, so mm-hmm. much younger when he did Jaws. And and so this article was written after the movie came out because it gave away the whole plot. When you read this article, yes. you're like, okay, yeah. So anybody that didn't see the movie or anybody that wants to fill in some of the holes can read this. And they said it, it, a lot of it was based on real UFO reportings. And he loved working with Richard Dreyfus again. And Douglas Trumbull, who did the um, special effects. And and he talked about how Spielberg is different because others shoot the movie, then add the effects. But he was kind of doing the effects as they went along. Which is kind of intriguing. This is the era when special effects were just on overdrive. They were getting better and better. Ever since 2001 Space Odyssey, they were viewing special effects as an integral part of the movie. Yes, and they, and because they were, they had the technology now to do more things that, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that's, that, in every era, you've got more technology now than ever before, so use it, put it in there, and make it great. And it said they actually, when they filmed the part on the mountain, they actually had to camp out and stay there. And as I was reading this, I looked up on about Close Encounter of the First Kind, Second Kind, and Third Kind. So let's go over. What's Close Encounter of the First Kind? It's a UFO sighting, but it has to be at least within 500 feet, because any further than that, then then you don't really know what you saw. All right, so close encounter of the second kind. Uh, that is when you. Oh, I know. It's it's when the second kind is when you see the uh, physical effects left by aliens. That and that's what we saw in the movie, like a burnt face. That yes. would be a second kind, right? So we're seeing evidence of both so far in this movie. Is a buildup. Which is a strange thing that they never explained that, though. They didn't say it in the movie, did they? No. They're like, okay, this is... It would have been easier if they talked us through it. But these things came from the the book that I mentioned, the UFO book. So it's mm-hmm. like... I mean, I mean, the book is what defined all of these things. And they are probably thinking that everybody is familiar with it. And they probably were back then. A lot of people were. Uh, so the the third kind was actually uh, making contact with aliens, seeing aliens. And what's interesting, because in this article they said that they almost didn't have the aliens in the movie. They were trying to decide. That's what I think is so fascinating about, and this is a very long article in Starlog. I mean, if you're a Close Encounters fan, these are the issues that you have to have for your collection. 
And I can't imagine the movie without aliens at the end. That's the buildup. That's exactly. the third. If you call the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind and you don't have contact with aliens, you have to rename the movie Close Encounters of the Second Kind. I mean, right? Which wouldn't sound as good. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or they could have just called it Close Encounters, though, which people call it for short. Yes. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And also, there are diagrams and designs of what the aliens were going to look like. And we did see a variety of aliens in the movie. So instead of just making one type of alien with the designs that were proposed, they decided to put a variety of them in the encounter, which I think was good because people look different on Earth. Why wouldn't aliens look different? And I thought that was surprising. I I mean, I guess it was another hint from Star Wars because Star Wars had all these different types of aliens. Um, because But watching this movie, I kind of thought that all of these aliens – came from the same planet because they were on the same ship but maybe not though they could have been from different planets or they could have just been adults and children which is what it looked like it looked like some were adults and some were children yeah yeah that's true that's true and and i think that's one of the magical things about the movie every viewer walks away with a different experience and they never made a sequel because they could have done something i'm glad they did yeah where we do find out i actually like the era of movies when they didn't constantly make sequels you know i say that and i love the planet of the apes and i love james bond of course but i mean if we were to make a sequel what would you expect to see out of it yeah something that um explains more about the aliens where you actually get to talk to them and hear where they're from maybe even visit their planet so yeah i mean that would take away a lot of the mystery that was in this movie because the same thing was said about et why didn't they make a sequel of E.T.? I mean, that was right, a huge yeah. hit, yeah. But it's part of the mystery, yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Nathan Allen. The Digital Brush, an interview with Star Wars animator Larry Cuba. He did the briefing room scene animation. It was approximately two minutes long, and it was done using digital computer animation of the 1970s and they pulled some serious rabbits out of their the computer they were using was a PDP 1145 made by DEC 16-bit processor 16-bit processor the display they used was a vector general 3d display and according to the article it was a 3d 3i but I'm finding that I'm going with this article, but there are other articles out there that I researched to back this up that say that they used a different uh, display, but it's not really that different. It was like a sub sub model. So we're going to go with 3D3i. And okay, they used those two, and he used a 35 millimeter camera to capture them to cells uh, to use it in cell animation. But it, what they did really was amazing. Given the constraints of the tech at the time, it was they had to build each 3D model manually. And when I say manually, I mean with his hands. This Mr. Cuba, you are the man. Let me tell you. He, according to the article, he sat down with a digital tablet. Now this is 1976. Okay. Digital tablet and stylus. And I'm familiar with this hardware. This hardware was not easy to use. Uh, it made it easier to use than pure coding blind, but 
it was not easy to use because the tablet is not like the tablet that you get from from Apple. The tablet was a giant chunk of plastic that weighed about 15 pounds and sat on a table or in your lap. And the stylus was not a, a little thing that slid into the side. It was this big thing. You know those multicolor ballpoint pens? It was that big. I had one, and it was wired with a huge cable. <laughs> it was such a clunky thing, but it was the 70s. It was high-tech, and that's a restraint, a constraint that he had to, to overcome. And then he had to manually, you know, like I said, manually input the images and then assemble it. And I'm not using it, that term, assemble it regularly speak because it meant something different back then uh okay he had to program it manually using the tablet the stylus and put it in and then that would translate to vector which is points on a screen that would generate a wire cage and then a sensor would trick the camera to take a picture at the time that the cell rolled around that it needed to that needed to be taken, the, the image on the display. And they created cells from those pictures. And that's really an amazing thing to think of because that kind of thing, that kind of thinking, using what you have to accomplish something that had not been done before, and it had not been done, right, spurred on the computers that we now have. So Star Wars, it really did spur on the future. Okay, other things had uh, envisioned certain things, but this was doing it in real life, okay? They took what we had, made something that we didn't have before. It's just really an amazing process. To read this article was was first a trip down memory lane, and uh, I do have a computer background, and I have a bigger background in collecting old computers because they're so interesting. The constraints on them having to deal with things like 512K of memory to work with, with no permanent storage, that's what these guys had to work with. And they had to work with even less. They did, they knocked it out of the park. They did a really good job. And the R2 scene uh, where he's showing all the holograms and the the briefing room scene is just amazing. What they did using the hardware at the time, it looked futuristic because it was the future. No one had done that before. No one had been able to figure out how to mix digital and analog and make it work until Mr. Cuba came along and made it work. It was it was just great, and it blew the audiences away. I was there. It blew me away. That trench scene, watching it from the wire cage, ugh, that was uh, it was great. Seeing the Death Star come up and rotate and zoom in, zoom out. Uh, he did all that manually using a ta a blind tablet. We wouldn't even think to use one of those these days. We would get on a phone. We would get on a laptop or a desktop or even an iPad. And just whip something up using an app. Well, those apps came, you can trace them directly back to this kind of work. Making vector graphics into true 3D graphics using digital and analog. That's just amazing to me. Okay.
That has been my coverage. Hope you enjoyed it, and may the Force be with you all. Okay, the Makeup Men, Magical Techniques of Movie and TV Special Effects. Now, this is someone who has an interesting story, Dan Stripeak. He worked on Planet of the Apes. You have my attention when when you do that. Planet of the Apes had had awesome makeup. The way they uh, could, the way the apes could move their faces, and their yeah, the mask could move with the face as they talked. Yes. So, and we're talking the original one all the way to the TV series. I think they always did a wonderful job of that. And he says that his most of his pride that he takes is not necessarily from Planet of the Apes, but also what he did for George C. E. Scott and Patton. And also makeup in Hello Dolly. When I think of makeup artists, I don't think them crossing over like that, just doing everyday ordinary people makeup. Yeah, I mean, I don't either really, but I guess, but they still need other jobs because there's still not that much science fiction. You're right. During this era, what what was it going to be? Once a year, twice a year? Yeah, that's that that is, and it, it doesn't say it in the article why he went back and forth, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because these other things need, they still need makeup artists. Dick Smith. Uh, Dick Smith worked with Dustin Hoffman, making him look old. That in itself is a feat. And he was doing a lot of horror work as well, which this is the type of thing you really can't talk about it so much, these Makeup Man articles, unless there's anecdotal stories, because it's all about the process of making molds of actors' faces and then adjusting the prosthetics. Which is actually a hard process. when when you, Like you've seen how they... How they made uh, the mold of people from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the mm-hmm. person has to sit there for uh, for hours with their face a certain way so that they can make a mold of it. So that's really hard on the actors. But he did say that working with Dustin Hoffman was very difficult making his aging makeup. The major problem was working on the eyelids because the eyelids are always mobile and they're constantly moving. And to, to do it right and to keep it on the entire time is a feat in itself. So that entire head that he did, the hardest part was working around the eyes. That's interesting too. But yeah, I can see that because it's a more the eyes are a more sensitive area and a more precise area for the makeup artist. And it shows him with this this toy. Uh, it's it's called the movie and TV horror makeup kit. Oh, sounds like something they sell. Yeah, it's a it, toy. <laughs> yeah. He well, he created that kit. It's one of the many Pressman toys th- that he helped create. And my brother and I would get these as a kid. And we would go around the house. I remember telling you this story. It wasn't Halloween. We would just get these makeup kits. And, and they were available year-round for, for crazy kids like us that wanted to just put makeup on and, and create and, and do different things. And my mother was very good at art. And she would draw an eyeball on my brother's forehead to make him have a third eye. <laughs> <laughs> But these Pressman makeup kits were, were so wonderful, having scars and just just things like that. It was like a beginner's prosthetic kit. It shot, it taught you the how to put hair on your face with spirit gum, things like that. Yeah. So for, to have an industry professional help produce something like that for kids, who knows today how many are, that are in the, the movie industry because of what he did making this accessible to the masses. And and the thing is, nowadays, y- you just do that with Photoshop. I mean, it's totally different now. <laughs> Chesley Bonstell, Conqueror of Space. Now, this is a name of an artist that a lot of people, it, it's not an everyday occurrence you hear his name, 
But if you're a science fiction fan, you're familiar with his work. If you've seen When Worlds Collide, Conquest of Space, if you've ever looked at the covers of Astounding or Fantasy and Science Fiction, I mean, those classic covers from the 50s and 60s, you've seen his work. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that NASA looked at his work. I mean, we're talking a classic artist from yesteryear, and NASA would actually try to find out how he got his ideas, what his motivation was, and they would work with him on on projects for NASA training and promotional material. So it's one of those artists that crosses the boundaries, science fiction to science fact. That's interesting. A science fiction artist helping NASA. I mean, it's like um, in the Star Trek world, like designing holodecks or something. (laughs) (laughs) This is Kevin Packard from the band Checkpoint Charlie, digging deep into the Starlog pile to discuss something that is near and dear to my heart, Superheroes on TV, an article written by... Richard Myers in the March 1978 issue about the then-current trend of bringing comic heroes to television. My special guest, Grant Pachoco, is a respected member of the comedy, music, and puppeteering communities. He's a member of the Podcast Hall of Fame. Superheroes on TV always began with Batman, right? Um, that sort of 60s camp. But one of the things that they reference in this article is the where, where the, the script was sort of flipped and Marvel actually came on television via Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. What are your memories of, of, of... First of all, did you watch either of these shows when they were on TV? Are you old enough to have watched them on TV? And what were your memories of that? Well, I definitely watched... I don't remember Spider-Man being on TV. I mean, obviously it was. Uh, well, uh, Spider-Man uh, on the Electric Company, I definitely <laughs> Nobody saw. Nobody knows who you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I, and I guess, you know, Spider-Man the cartoon, I certainly watched a lot. Um, so if that's, if that's the, but uh, live action Spider-Man, I don't think I saw other than the Electric Company. But oh, yeah. I have a vivid memory. Unfortunately, it's not about the show, but I have a vivid memory of watching The Incredible Hulk. And I would okay, watch The tell. Incredible Hulk regularly. And I loved The Incredible Hulk. My my memory is that my mom kept telling me I like had to come to dinner or something. Like She kept telling me there was something to do, and I wanted to watch The Incredible Hulk. And I, in my, you know, I don't know how old I was, five years old or whatever, in my brain, I was like, Oh, if I turn off the TV right now, it will save my space. And then I'll be able to come. I'm going to wait to a commercial. I'm going to turn off the TV and then I'll be able to come back and watch the incredible, the rest of the incredible Hulk. Uh, of course that didn't work, but I invented TiVo back <laughs> when I was five years old. Uh, if only I had known what I invented, but, um, yeah, I mean, I loved, I loved the incredible Hulk. Yeah, they, they actually, they were talking about for a very short time, I, think, I believe it was two seasons, they had a live action Spider-Man television show. It began with the two hour TV movie because everything began with the two hour TV movie back then. This is 1978. Right. So, so, you know, you had, this is just after uh, a Star Wars came out. And so you had the two hour TV movie of Battlestar Galactica, which launched a series. And then you had a two hour TV movie of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And that launched an entire series, right? Um, but one of the things that most of these people talk about is just how expensive it was to produce television like that. Because, I mean, you, you know, if, if for the average kid watching The Incredible Hulk, you, you watch 
him change from Bill Bixby into Lou Ferrigno and you'd see the same sort of sequence, the, the, the metamorphosis that had happened the same way pretty much every time, right? You watch that now and you go, oh, come on, you guys. That's kind of lazy. But back then it was like, oh, he's going to transform. He, he, he got his foot caught in, in, a, in the brake on his car and he's getting all pissed off. And so now he's going to transform. And you waited for that, right? Yeah. The, the interesting thing that they reference in this article is the fact that in the 70s, it kind of flipped the script a little bit in that, you know, when you had the camp of, of, of Batman and you had um, uh, the seriousness or the, the sort of the over-the-top wholesome goodness of Superman in the 50s, in the 70s, you suddenly had these superhero characters who had an identity, who had a past, who had a conscience. And, and um, it wasn't really the birth of the anti-hero, but I think that more to the point, it was like the birth of the reluctant hero. Do you know also that in the late 70s, they had an actual live action Captain America television show? Uh, I have seen that. I never saw it live, but I've certainly seen, you know, uh, things about it now uh, or, you know, within the within the past couple of years or so of of how they did. I kind of really dug the the sort of more obscure uh, 70s era uh, superhero television shows Um, that like the Sid and Marty Croft variety stuff like Electra Woman and Dinah Girl. And do you, do you remember any of, the, any of the stuff that they used to have on Saturday mornings? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, uh, it wasn't superhero, but like Wonderbug and uh, Wonderbug. You know, we're talking Sid and Marty Croft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Know. Oh, and, and it none of it was really that fantastic, but it was the fact that it was happening. You I mean, like, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, like, well, like when I was a kid, all the Sid and Marty Croft stuff from uh, or the Croft superstars where you had like Captain Cool and the Kongs and... Electra Woman and Dinah Girl and Dr. Shrinko and um, uh, Fire Out Space Nuts. And, and of course, uh, you know, um, uh, H.R. Puff and stuff. You know, lots yeah. of puppetry and all those things. Land of the Lost, too. Land yeah. of the Lost. So not necessarily animation. superhero-ish, but, you know, sci-fi fantasy, of course. One of the things that I love about about that era of television, whether it's The Incredible Hulk or, you know, um, or, or Spider-Man or Captain America or the Muppets or Buck Rogers or, you know, Battlestar, they took all the elements that they had and they did something with it. You know, I mean, just using practical effects to their advantage and making it not a cheap gimmick, but something that was beautiful. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek Preview Podcast. For the first time ever, this is a breakthrough moment, okay? You ready? Oh, gosh, okay. Can I swear? Yes. I give a shit about one of the characters, which is nice, because I don't normally. Which character do you give a shit about? O'Brien. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I thought it was mighty decent of him what he did, and he knew that he could have gotten in trouble, and he seems quite a loyal person to have aboard your space station. He's a decent guy. Yeah. He's Irish. Um, yeah. A lot of Irish people are decent guys. I haven't met that many Irish people. I met loads. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4 Random Trek Review A Star Trek Review Podcast
Okay, well, I, it's one of those things where, like, you would expect, like, as medical history gets better and everything, like, life expectancy gets longer, just like we experienced in our own kind of world and planet, right? Like, it's way better now than it was 50 years ago versus 100 versus 200, so. Versus 5,000 years ago where you'd be lucky to live to, like, 30? Yeah, exactly. We'd already <laughs> be done and dusted, my friend. Well, or we'd be super old. Right, we'd be like the village elders. <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Ladies Trek Library, a podcast by women with a passion for Star Trek books. The author of this book, Dana Kramer Rolls, this is the only Star Trek book she's ever written, which would explain why I've never okay. read anything from her before. Yeah, I heard that she did write some other sci-fi books, but no other Star Trek. Yeah, and she does seem like, like she's a fan. It seems, from the way she handled the characters, I, I would say she is a fan of Star Trek. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that she was a fan. Um, and knew the characters. She has a PhD in folklore and history of religions. Cool. So that makes sense. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.